Greetings, this is Kurt. This is a continuation of the third and largest portion of Book One, Enchanter's Lot. If this is your first visit to the Harkin Theater, we recommend you step back and find the first episode of Prelude, The Hostage Prince. Otherwise, make yourself comfortable as we continue the performances. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and share on your favorite platform. Comments and questions directed to our email will be answered promptly. If you care to be a preferred audience member and help in keeping these complex productions coming, please buy me a coffee via the website coffee.com listed with the description of each episode. And thank you for listening. Step through the gateway and enter the universe of the Harkin Theater. This is episode 11. The Harkin Theater presents the sound plays of A Bridge of Doom by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Book One, Part Three, Enchanter's Lot. Vague reflections of colors split through the prism of the crystal, quickened and blended until a single point of white light glowed within its core. Holding the stone level with his eyes, Gaewan gazed within it, beckoning unknown forces. He acted with confidence, drawing on his riads of experience in channeling power. And yet, why? Am I doing this? It was as if somewhere in the back of his mind, hidden in shadow, was an essence, an as yet unrealized part of himself driving him, manipulating him, like the madman who does what he does, yet knows not why. Ever since this morning, when Flana helped him pull himself together somehow, a subtle urge to do this thing, this calling, nagged at his consciousness. Whenever he tried to focus on the urge, it evaded him like a distant, painful memory that didn't want to be seen. Pain? Yes, pain. That was it. He squinted slightly at the light shining out of the crystal in his hand. I must have restitution. With this conclusion, he put aside his wondering and placed all his attention on the task at hand. There would be resistance to what he solicited, of that he had no doubts. If he was not careful, he could very well end up dead, if not truly mad. Uh. 
Flaina blinked and rubbed her eyes with bewilderment as the circle of bluestone powder shimmered ever so slightly, making the whole spectacle seem like a dream. Keeping his eyes fixed on the stone, Gaewan sang a phrase of words completely unfamiliar to his companions. Flaina touched Trimble's shoulder in mute query. He speaks the sacred language of our forefathers. My translation is vulgar at best, but I shall attempt it. He calls the blessed name of Epaya, God of the North, and one of the nine of the divine flame. As a gentle breeze passed through the conjuring ground, Gaewan stopped his recital of the mystic phrase. He has evoked a response. The wind comes out of the north. His crystal must indeed be a powerful channeling force, if he can speak but three times. I'm not sure whether or not to be afraid of this fact. A simple breeze and he stops? When someone calls your name, you do not run up to them, lift them off the ground and shake them, do you? No, you respond gently. An enchanter is always aware of the subtle messages of the invisible, which communicates through any means possible. He has translated the wind as answer to his call. Gaewan began to recite a new phrase, his words sounding so precise, so heavy with meaning that translation seemed almost redundant. The observing trio in the window felt something immense was going to happen, even though none of them could begin to guess what it might be. He is calling... No, he is making a calling for... He uses words I do not comprehend. The best I can make out, he is using the basic phonetics of the secret language to create a word for... Gods... He is making a summons. What do you mean, a summons? Like a mage summons a spirit? Yes. No, not exactly. He invokes superior intervention. For what I do not know. Flaina felt a chill cascade over her body as she comprehended the meaning of the word. Intervention? This does not bode well. If you're right, can't you stop him? For the first time, Flaina saw dread in his eyes. No, and if I could, I would not. At Gaewan's feet, the circle of bluestone glowed luminescent as a swifter breeze sprang up, drawing his tunic tight and flapping his cloak behind him. Clough and Flaina looked up to see flickers of lightning flash between the giant anvil heads. The wind became fierce, making it seem the clouds were alive and boiling with dark fury. A bolt of lightning tore loose from the atmospheric battle and leaped to the ground, its blinding point striking the circle at Gaewan's feet, as if the great storm spreading over the whole territory and consuming the sunlight sought to annihilate this lone man. The enchanter stayed his place, eyes unmoving from his fiery crystal. The bluestone at his feet flashed once in a momentary ring of flaming azure, then went black, completely burned to ash. Dust and rain flew upward in the swirling air around him. Amidst the tumult, Flaina blinked away the momentary blindness and reached for Trimble's arm. 
The circle, is he no longer protected? No, he's not. And those air elementals are closing in on him. Those are the least of his problems. Having only a vague knowledge of such things, she watched the twisting spirals of dust and wind whip around the courtyard. Can't we help? No. Do nothing or lose everything. He pointed skyward. Looking up, she felt her blood go cold. A ball of luminescent green fire shot out of the churning storm and plummeted to the earth, leaving a comet's trail of green iridescence fading in its wake. Slamming the ground, the sickly green flames leaped up and danced like frenzied demons about Gaewan. Clough fell to his knees and pressed palms to his ears, his eyes wide with fright. The voices of flame and wind rasped out of the encircling fire. Flaina reached for Clough, but as she glanced back at the courtyard, she found her attention locked on the vision of Gaewan standing fearlessly with his blazing crystal amidst the inferno, a picture out of some hellish nightmare. Dead to The circle of green fire began to close in, pausing only long enough to consume the ashes of the bluestone. Kneel to our mercy, No! Gawan moved steely eyes from the white fire of his gym to the writhing forms of luminescent flame, reaching claws for him. You will be crushed! I hold the power of one! We devour all, let alone one. Trimble started gripping the windowsill tightly as he saw a faint shape take form out of the air between Gawan and the fire, the shade blending into the enchanter's body. At the same instant, the fire roared higher, sending sparks spinning skyward and gathering strength to consume him. His eyes flashed bright silver. Thou hast taken mine own! I shall take another for mine own! He flung his hand outward, then shook his fist. Be gone from my place! I fear you not! The evil fire suddenly dwindled to a faint glimmer in the dirt, then to nothing. A torrential downpour followed, as if nature herself sought to wash away all vestiges of the brief conflict. Blinking eyes warily, Clough stood up and removed his hands from his ears. The cacophonous noise that had assaulted him now departed. Shaking his head at the imploring look from Flaina, he looked out the window, past Trimble, staring into the gray sheets of rain at the enchanter. Gawan stood there, motionless, soaked to the skin, Crystal now at his side, all evidence of its white fire gone. Is this a trick of the rain or my fatigued eyes? For a moment, it looked as if a shadow lifted up from his form and flitted away. What has he done? She had never seen or imagined anything like this. How had Gaewan commanded the elements? Or had it just been a trick of illusion? Already, the thunder and fire faded in her memory. 
Trimble shook his head with a mystified frown, the pinch-wing on his head reflecting his expression. Aside from invoking the anger of some higher essence, I know not. The downpour slowed almost as quickly as it had started. <sighs> Gaewan placed the crystal back in its pouch and glanced around as if to get his bearings. He brushed away the dirt and moisture streaking his face as the slowing drizzle pattered the ground around him. Blinking at the stray drops finding his eyes, he looked to the sky, searching the billowed majesties. Does he know what he's done? Yes, but he's scared, as would be I. Gaewan took a deep breath, parted his lips, but wavered for an instant. Goldam! For the first time since the spectacle began, Trimble took attention off his former student and looked up at the sky. A ball of yellow fire emerged and dropped swiftly toward the courtyard, much like the earlier green one. It struck the ground before Gaewan and encircled him with golden flames shooting skyward. The conflagration suddenly evaporated in a wash of heat, leaving behind an enormous serpent encircling Gaewan and filling almost the entire courtyard. Clough and Flaina stared with mouths agape at the bronze dragon, while Trimble merely nodded with amazement and satisfaction at this achievement of his pupil. Gaewan turned to face the dragon's massive head. After a long moment, it opened large eyes slowly. Twin flames of gold shone out of the horned head, glanced about the courtyard and the distant mountains, then came to rest on the man standing before it. After studying him silently for a while, a deep voice erupted gently from the ethers, the dragon's thoughts entering the minds of all who watched. Thou appear as a memory. Wouldst thee grant allowance of that which thou art called? I am called Gaewan. I am an enchanter. He stood confidently with hands clasped behind him and gazed into the golden eye closest to him. Are thou able to explain where am I? Yes. He was aware of the exacting decorum required in communicating with a dragon. When this formality was observed, one revealed great patience, a virtue regarded highly among the more intelligent serpents. Patience was considered the foundation for understanding anything. To hurry a dragon when it considered you worthy of its attention, or to seem quick in question, was to lose its interest and respect. The great winged beast of flame and claw lifted its massive head and rolled eyes about, again scrutinizing the courtyard and the town beyond with measured deliberation. A few breaths passed, I was prisoner in a cave, suffering as a pet to a mountain man. I felt my awareness struck by a supreme force. I heard a single word. Surrounded was I by fire. It returned its gaze to Gaewan. I know somehow you are responsible. One called Gaewan. 
Grant your knowledge, your intent to me. Shifting because his feet were sore from standing, he cogitated a careful reply. The large gold eyes followed his every movement. By the powers of a gift from Durbriag, king of dragons, I have freed you from your prison. By the powers of this gift... He was uneasy with the rest of his answer, yet he knew he must not withhold any information. Though it was only popular legend that dragons knew when you lied, he didn't want to test it. I have created a word of summoning, which calls you to my place. The scales about its horned head flared, its tail flicking like an angry cat's. It lowered its head as if to snap him in two. I have been freed from one yoke, only to be burdened with another. The fiery orbs darkened. Am I to be pet again? Suppressing fright at the swift change in the serpent's mood, Gawan kept his facade neutral. No. Yes. The eyes lightened again as it stopped. I see not. Explain no and yes. I claim myself master of no being. You are free to roam the skies and worlds open to you. Freedom is the right of all creatures. My calling will occur only when I have a need. A need for what? Blinking silently for a moment, Gawan was overcome suddenly with what he had done, what he was doing, and he stared at the great serpent with mute astonishment, as if just awakening and discovering its immense presence. Just a few breaths before, he had been in a vivid dream, making powerful decisions, yet had no actual control of the events at hand. Now he was awake. The ethereal music of action and intent to which he had been dancing had stopped. Gods, what have I been doing? Faltering amidst what until this moment had been utter certainty, he trembled and dropped to his knees, knowing he risked offending the dragon by not replying to its polite question. Whatever drove him faded, but did not vanish from his consciousness completely. What was it I said? Thou hast taken mine own? Something painful tore at his heart, a grief so deep he dared not unearth it. Something deliberately forgotten, pushed so far away that he couldn't see it. All he wanted to do now was weep. He felt as a child might who had inadvertently opened a forbidden chest and spilled its fragile contents onto the ground. What retribution, what karma had he sown in his boldness? He shook his head in utter shame at himself, feeling he had disgraced everything he practiced. To weave a calling was something of sorcerers and demons, not enchanters and dragons. Watching with silent fascination, Flaina saw the dragon regard the kneeling Gawan with what could only be construed as genuine concern, any vestige of anger absent. Exuding forbearance, it awaited an answer. She wondered what could possibly be wrong after all that had happened. 
The world was a distant distraction to the enchanter as he fought back tears and crumpled a corner of his cloak in his hands, still wet from the downpour. There was no way for him to put his despair into words, for he knew not from whence it came. At a lack for anything else to do, he extracted the crystal from its pouch and held it before him, but could not lift his eyes from the ground. He knew if he gazed into those giant soul-searching orbs, he would collapse into a fit of sobs. I hath freed thee, great dragon, but I am servant and slave to this, the gift of Durbriag. Horrified at this admission, Flaina clenched fists at her sides and invented new curses for the king of dragons. The man I love, first infected by Felis Canthropy, now reduced to serving a cold stone for the whim of an absent demigod. Then, to her astonishment, she saw complete understanding unveiled in the dragon's eyes. Not servant or slave, Enchanter Gawain, but aspirant. He stared at the ground for a long moment, absorbing what had been said. Struck by the meaning of this word, he raised his head slowly, despair washed away by intrigue. Hiding the crystal back in its pouch, he stood shakily. <clears throat> Aspirant? What does this mean? You have become a scholar of dragons! A shimmering pillar of light danced next to Gaynor, followed by the sudden appearance of a tall man robed in brown cloth with threads of gold. Recognizing the flaxen hair and closely trimmed beard, Gaywan knelt. My lord. Resting a gentle hand on the enchanter's head, Durbriag smiled warmly. An excellent feat, my friend, and a fitting reward for wresting control of the crystal from that sorcerer. You knew of him? He rubbed his chin with reluctance. Not until you broke his hold over the crystal. Since its creation long before my reign, the crystal has been sought by a very few who happened to learn of its existence. None succeeded in unlocking the crystal's secrets, of course, as it was not meant for them. Apparently, after this last sorcerer failed, he chose to encloak it with a spell that would trap a successful seeker. You, my friend, into servitude to him, thus giving him a second chance at controlling the crystal. Unfortunately, with him being human, I could not counter his power without destroying the crystal in a struggle of two different magics. He gazed openly at the enchanter as if beseeching absolution. I regret the trial you suffered at his hands. Astounded at the king's offering, his thoughts were still awash with puzzlement at his own actions and wonderment at what was happening. I, um, I'm grateful I could be of service, my lord. 
Eyes sparkling with a gentle smile of acceptance, Durbriag nodded courteously, then took in the immense bronze dragon curled around them. It is good to have you back among us, Blitheron. You are due for lessons at my palace of Kailash. Blitheron. Gawan watched the dragon close one eye at him. He hadn't thought to ask for its name. Meanwhile, Clough, Flaina, and Trimble discovered problems focusing on the magnificent scene, the infusion of light surrounding Durbriag blurring the air. He will be there when you call, my friend. How fitting that he should continue his task of guarding the crystal, if indirectly. Appreciably, he grasped Gawan's shoulder. I wish I'd thought of this, and much sooner. I hope I won't have the need for such. The enchanter was confused, but glad he had pleased the king. Is there anything else you require? Durbriag's silver eyes sparkled. <laughs> Only thee, gay one. Only thee. He swung a hand to the sky. To the Mount Kailash, Blitheron! An instant later, Gaewan stood alone on the rain-soaked ground. Trimble leaned wearily against the window frame. Clough rubbed his face while Flaina blinked eyes with an abrupt drowsiness. The contrast between the courtyard's brilliance when Durbriag and the dragon were present, and how it looked now, lent the aura of a dream to the whole event. Did it really happen? <sighs> yes. The effect you're noticing has been noted in writings by those who witnessed peaceable assemblies of dragons. Their recall of the events was unclear, and many wondered if they had imagined it. Others fell asleep during or shortly after, thus they could never be sure what they had seen or dreamed. Really? I saw it clearly, except for Durbriag's aura. You carry that power sword, don't you? Yes. By wielding it, you've become accustomed to handling power. Thus, you can concentrate on the event. Durbriag's power is said to be closely attuned to the divine sound current much like free thinkers of the highest discipline. Thus he is surrounded by threads of god power. Hearing this, Flaina checked her momentary displeasure with Durbriag. Perhaps I'd been too suspicious of the king. I need to start my study of enchant as soon as possible. I don't want to forget meetings with Durbriag if I'm to keep Gaewan from making reckless decisions. Though he wouldn't be Gaewan if he didn't act rashly now and again. Greetings, my friends. The enchanter stood beneath their window, arms folded across his chest, rain-soaked tunic sticking to his skin. I didn't realize I had an audience, else I would have practiced. Regardless, the performance has improved much since our minstreling days. Trimble, fighting an itch in his nose from the dust that had blown about, sneezed violently, <coughs> inadvertently flinging Muff off the top of his head. The Pinchwing quickly caught himself with a whir of his wings and darted around the courtyard. 
I have warned you about sitting on my head. The mage dabbed at his nose with a kerchief. <laughs> Gaewan headed back into the Athenium to join them. A Bridge of Doom, Part 3, Enchanter's Lot. The sound plays of the novel were written, recorded, directed, mastered, and produced by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Copyright 2022. Character voices for Episode 11 are performed by Jim Marshall, Jay Gilbert, Richard Hammer, Darcy Aridell Hotelling, Puffin, Marcel Hammer, Al Bird, and H, the Great and Powerful. The novel and its sequels, making up a quintology so far at present, are available through Amazon.com, on Kindle Books, can be ordered at your favorite bookseller, or can be purchased directly and at best price with additional bonuses from the author by submitting a request to our email. Music for the Harkin Theater was composed and performed by Evan McDonald, Florian Serral, Francesco D'Andrea, Atlas Mason, High Street Music of London, and licensed by PremiumBeat.com. Public domain music performances are licensed under Lieber Lieber Creative Commons. More detailed music and performer credits can be requested from the Harkin Theater at Yahoo.com. Sound effects and original foley provided by Cusp Studios, Marcus Lloyd, SoundDogs.com, and the BBC Library. This was recorded on location in the universe.